In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshesh, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. The word of God came to John the son of Zechariah in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with those who have none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not exhort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased." The Gospel of Christ. As we begin, let's be seated and bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word through which you speak to us, reveal yourself to us. I pray in light of that truth that I as preacher just get out of the way. There'd be far, far less of me, far, far more of you. That your people gathered virtually would be edified, your son Jesus glorified. For we ask this in his name. Amen. The pandemic has immersed us in a liminal season. We are neither here nor there. It is neither what was nor what will be. It's unsettling. We can't plan for the future, immersed, as it were, in the seemingly endless sameness of the present. 
It's a season riddled with anxiety as we desperately want to go back to the comfort of what was or leap ahead before we're ready to find that new normal just to feel something solid beneath our feet. We're immersed in a liminal season and we all wish it were not so. But what if instead of pushing at it or disengaging or expressing angrily our discontent, we embraced it. I mean, we can't change it. Perhaps this liminal season can be leveraged for our best, such that when we arrive there, wherever there may be, we are more the people that God desires us to be. For it's often in these liminal seasons, as writer Susan Beaumont puts it, that God does some of his greatest work. You see, much of the time in the biblical narrative is spent in such a liminal season. Israel in the Sinai Desert, neither here nor there, neither in Egypt nor in the Promised Land. Yet it was there in that liminal season that God did some of his greatest work work, rescuing them from slavery, preserving them in the desert, calling them to be his own, forming them by the law to reflect his goodness, grace, mercy, justice, and all of that in a liminal season, neither here nor there, neither what was nor what will be. Now, each year as a nation, Israel would reorient itself to God's work in that liminal season. Three times a year, they would ascend to Jerusalem to celebrate the pilgrimage feasts. At Passover, they would remember God's rescue. At Pentecost, they would remember the giving of the law that formed them. At Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, they would remember God's provision and presence in the desert. Such pilgrimages would take time. The pilgrimage itself, a liminal season, neither here nor there, neither at home nor in Jerusalem. But the time was leveraged for their best. Along the way, in the midst of their ascent toward Jerusalem, the pilgrims engaged in an ancient process of formation. They would sing together the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 through 134. Each psalm sung, discussed, debated, as they once more rested in who God called them to be, as they once more committed themselves to live God's way in God's world. In his book on the Psalms of Ascent, Eugene Peterson writes this, Christians will recognize how appropriately these psalms may be sung between the times, for they are songs of transition, brief hymns that provide courage, support, and inner direction for getting us where God is leading us in Jesus. So in this liminal season, I invite us as a church on pilgrimage, as we ascend to celebrate the Easter feast, we will along the way sing the songs of ascent, such that when we get through this liminal season and arrive there, wherever there may be, we will not be the same people. We will not be the same church. We 
pray that we would be more and more the people, the church, that God calls us to be. Now every journey, every pilgrimage needs a first step, a setting of our faces toward our destination. And Psalm 20 gives us just that, our first step. So I'd invite you to turn either in your Bibles or on your Bible app to Psalm 120. We pick up at verse 1. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, a deceitful tongue. Can we relate to the psalmist? I would suspect that there's not a person listening to the sound of my voice who is not to varying degrees knowing the pain of being in a relationship with someone who pays fast and loose with the truth, either through bold-faced lie, half-truth, creative spin, or exaggeration, we've learned that we can't trust what this person says. And the relationship rarely recovers, if not for the miracle of forgiveness or trust being rebuilt over the long haul. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, a deceitful tongue. Perhaps you know the agony of being the target of malicious gossip that like a feather pillow ripped apart in the wind, it's impossible to pick up all of the pieces. We will never fully recover from the lie. Questions will always remain about us in the minds and hearts of others. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, a deceitful tongue. While the psalmist's agony is likely personal, They've been impacted by this, the weaponized words and the false assertions. The psalmist is stepping back and surveying his world. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, a deceitful tongue. The Toronto Star kept a lie counter active through the Trump presidency, naming every single false claim. By the end, it numbered in multiple thousands. And even though Trump is no longer president, his lies still wreak havoc, solidifying deep divisions in a nation, speeding along the decline of American democracy. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, a deceitful tongue. A little closer to home, We're needing to navigate a sea of information around the COVID-19 pandemic. And this expert says that, and this other expert says this. One of them cries, fear, fear, shelter in place. The other, anger, anger. This is not a big deal. Politicians craft public policy. But an election is coming. Are they concerned about our safety or their safety? Our future or their future. The generation coming of age in the midst of this pandemic is admitting that they're coming to a place where they can't trust their government. Oh, they say they let the science and the numbers dictate their decisions, but the science and the numbers aren't changing, and yet their decisions are. 
Can we trust no one we meet, depend upon no one we see? Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, a deceitful tongue. The psalmist is expressing deep dissatisfaction with the way the world works. And lying lips and a deceitful tongue are illustrative rather than comprehensive. The psalmist could have just as easily pointed out something else. And so let me ask you, if you were crying out in deep dissatisfaction with the way the world works, where would you cast your eyes? What sorrows would rest heavy upon your heart? What words would pass your lips? How would you sing this song? My favorite band is U2. You may know that the lead singer, Bono, has a deep love of the Psalms. And many of their works owe inspiration to those songs. I remember years ago reading a book that reflected on how U2 chose their songs for their concert set lists. And it was the wisdom of this song, these songs of ascent, that guided them. For their opening songs of their concerts would often express this deep dissatisfaction with the way the world worked. Because if we're not dissatisfied with the way the world works, we won't look to what could be. Now such a starting point resonates deeply with concert goers. Because it would be rare to find someone who's not varying ways and varying degrees not dissatisfied with the way the world works. So what makes the psalmist's cry distinctive? Well, in our dissatisfaction, where do we look to for help, for relief? Well, often we'll cry out, Deliver us, O politician! O leader! O policy! And depending on our political inclinations, that'll mean we'll either look to the left or we'll look to the right. And while, yes, leaders on the left are able to address some problems well, they often exacerbate others. And leaders on the right are able to address some problems, but often exacerbate others. Deliver me, O Lord. In our dissatisfaction, where do we turn to for relief? We're told that we're in the midst of a climate catastrophe. And if we in the West in particular don't severely limit our carbon footprint, which would mean a drastic change in our lifestyles, we're going to hit a point soon of no return. And since none of us seems willing to make such a sacrifice, we cry out, Deliver us, O science! What makes the psalmist's cry distinctive? It's where they turn to for help. Not a human solution, but a divine one. Deliver me, O Lord! As Eugene Peterson puts it, as long as we think the next election might eliminate crime and establish justice, or another scientific breakthrough might save the environment, 
or another pay raise might push us over the edge of anxiety into a life of tranquility, we're not likely to risk the arduous uncertainties of a life of faith. The psalmist has come to see in the midst of his deep dissatisfaction with the way the world works that nothing other than God will be able to save. Deliver us, O Lord. And how does the psalmist believe that God will deliver? Well, verse 3. What should be done to lying lips, deceitful tongues? And verse 4 answers, warriors, sharp arrows, glowing coals of the broom tree. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, okay, I, I was with the psalmist up to this point. I too am dissatisfied with the way the world works, but calling down the judgment of God upon others, that goes far beyond my comfort zone. And it's sentiments like this that make religion an evil force in our world. Such things should be stricken from the record. But is that what the psalmist is asking? You see, the most natural reaction that is stirred up in us when wrong has been committed against us or when we see wrong perpetuated against another is the desire for justice, right? For wrongs to be righted. And what do we do with that desire? Well, we often look for the opportunity ourselves to bring that justice about, to make them pay for what they've done. And we just have to exact our pound of flesh, right? And then the other person seems, thinks that we haven't done right to them, that justice must be done, and they return for justice. And then the cycle of retaliation ensues. And perhaps some of us are stuck in it even now. The other option is to forgive, to break that cycle. And one of the necessary steps toward forgiveness is to give that natural and good desire for justice over to God. The only one who is wise enough, merciful enough, loving enough, powerful enough to bring about true justice. For his justice is a holy justice. It's that giving of justice over to God that limits the psalmist's anger. How? Well, the phrase, warrior's arrows, is used in the psalms to speak of the natural consequences of our weaponized words. They are as warrior's arrows that pierce. The psalmist then is asking that the perpetrators suffer the natural consequences of their wrong. Toward what end? Not punishment, but repentance. The burning coals pointed to an ancient Egyptian practice of putting coals on one's head as a sign of penitence. It's Paul in Romans 12 who picks up on this. He says, don't avenge yourselves. Leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. No. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. 
He's picking up what the psalmist has been saying. Give that desire for justice over to God. And then forgive, love the one who has harmed you. And while not a foregone conclusion, in doing so, you will create the environment where the other might see their wrong, repent, fall upon God's mercy, and receive the Spirit for the transformation of their hearts and lives. The psalmist is expressing their deep dissatisfaction with the way the world works, turns to God for help, and then invites all of us to repent. Incidentally, as we heard in our children's moment, today is the day in our liturgical calendar where we celebrate Jesus' baptism. And our text from Luke carries this same theme as does the psalm. Jesus' baptism was immersed in the ministry of John the Baptist, and John's message was clear. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, we often hear that message individualistically. Repent of the bad things you do and fall upon the forgiveness of God, but those around John would not have heard it that way. They would have heard it as a collective call to leave the patterns of the world and to adopt the patterns of the kingdom. John illustrates this for us. Where the pattern of the world is to accumulate for yourself, as the 90s No Fear t-shirt said, those who die with the most toys wins. The patterns of the kingdom was to give away all that you don't need. Where the pattern of the world is to extort from others as much as you possibly can, pattern of the kingdom is to be satisfied with what you have. Where the pattern of the world is to use your power for your own sake, the pattern of the kingdom is to lay down your power for the sake of others. And Jesus picked up this mantle of John the Baptist in his own ministry as the first words from Jesus recorded in Mark were the same as John's. Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Leave the patterns of the world and adopt the patterns of the kingdom. Now, while dissatisfaction with the way the world works is common to our humanity, rejecting the patterns of the world to adopt the patterns of the kingdom in repentance is not. And the psalmist ends the psalm by reflecting on the resulting state. Verse 7. Woe to me, I sojourn in Meshach. I dwell amongst the tents of Kedar. Those are place names. Meshach was a far-off tribe thousands of miles from Palestine in southern Russia. And Kedar, a wandering Bedouin tribe of barbaric reputation along Israel's borders. The psalmist is saying, when I, in repentance, step away from the patterns of the world to adopt the patterns of God's kingdom, I feel like a stranger in a strange land. I'm at odds with those around me. I say peace and they cry war. The Psalms of Ascent prepared the people to celebrate the feasts, to reorient themselves 
to God's saving work. Israel had been rescued from slavery in Egypt, rescued by the mighty hand and an outstretched arm. They had left Egypt, and yet every day a choice lay before them. Would they worship the gods of Egypt or Yahweh? Would they allow Egypt's story to define them or God's story? Would they continue the patterns of Egypt in their midst or adopt the patterns of God's kingdom? The follower of Jesus has been rescued from slavery to sin and death by a cross and a resurrection. We are no longer bound to sin and death, and yet every day a choice lies before us. Will we worship the gods of this world, of power, money, sex, fame, or will we worship God in Jesus? Will we allow the stories our world tells us about ourselves, the stories of secular humanism, or will, will we allow God's story of creation and redemption in Jesus to define us? Will we continue the patterns of this world Or will we adopt the patterns of the kingdom? And we know, as Eugene Peterson puts it, that Israel in saying no to Egypt did not miraculously return to Eden to live in primitive innocence or mystically inhabit a heavenly city and live in supernatural ecstasy. They worked and played, suffered and sinned in the world, as everyone else did, and as Jesus' followers still do. But now they were going someplace. They were going to God. Like Israel, in the desert, we are in a liminal season. We are neither here nor there. It is neither what was nor what will be. But such a liminal season can be leveraged for our best. As we sing together the psalms of ascent and prepare to celebrate the Easter feast, we take our first step. We set our face once more to our destination, to where God is calling us in Jesus. As we ascend, will we together sing this song? saying no to the patterns of this world, that we might say yes to the patterns of the kingdom. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.